Open, outspoken, it's ophthalmology off the grid, an honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Blake Williamson. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. I'm Blake Williamson. In this episode, I welcome back the off-the-grid legend himself, Dr. Gary Wirtz, and we bring in a guest all the way from Australia, Dr. Ben LaHood. We talk about his path from medical student to New Zealand to his current position as an ophthalmic and refractive surgeon in Southern Australia, and he shares his perspective on the differences in the fields between his side of the world and ours here in the U.S. This and more coming up on Live, Laugh, LaHood. I mean, ophthalmology off the grid? Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in ophthalmology. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. We are your host, Blake Williamson, and the man, the myth, the legend, Dr. Gary Wirtz, who's been hanging out with me these past three episodes um, uh, just talking all things ophthalmology um, from people all over the world. And we really went uh, far on the other side of the world for today's episode. I was asking Gary, I was like, who should our next um, guest be? And he's like, what about that Ben LaHood guy? I think he's like, uh, is he Kiwi or is he Aussie? He's got that podcast. And I was like, man, not him. Because I had some insecurities because I went and listened to his podcast like months ago. I was like, who's this guy that's got this competing podcast? And I was hoping it was really shitty. And unfortunately, it was really good. And he had good guests. And I was like, damn. And then he had like an accent too. And I was like, you know what? That That's frustrating. Surely he's not as good looking as we are. And then I look him up and he's not bad looking. And it's all these things. It's all these insecurities bubbling up, Gary. But nonetheless, he's an interesting guy. And I think that we're lucky to have him hop on with us all the way from Australia. Yeah, I agree, Blake. Uh, ben, I, we've been kind of following you from afar. And uh, I, I said earlier in, in the intro, when we were just sort of uh, kicking things around that, you know, I've been a big fan of of your publications, your podcast, uh, your, your, your shoe game is on point. Um, all these things, you're an interesting guy. And I felt like it was it was far, it's been far too long. Uh, for us to not have you as a guest. And, and I just I'm excited about the chance to get to know you a little bit better. Oh, well, thank you. Thank both of you so much for having me because, you know, this is podcast inception. You guys are the, the OG podcast that inspired me. You know, I, I can quote, you know, open, outspoken, you know, I could, I could go on, <laughs> I could talk about that all day. I know all of your episodes. So I, I definitely don't want to think like we're competing. I would say you're the inspiration, but yeah, thank you very much for having me. So, so, so Ben, maybe for the first question, talk about why you have not invited us on your podcast, but we've invited you on our podcast. <laughs> I know, I know. This, well, this is that's, that's the Don't real answer. question. Don't answer. I'm, no, I'm, 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 I'm halfway kidding. Um, I actually, I actually do have an answer though, Black. I've got to say, the whole idea of ophthalmology against the rule was no guests. It's just me and Nick chewing the fat, chatting away. And it was actually the separate podcast that I, that Alcon approached me to run, uh, The Second Look, where I interview sort of famous ophthalmologists, if, we, if any of us are famous. Uh, Infamous. So, so, yeah, exactly. So ophthalmology against the rule, no guests. So we can't offend anyone. I got you. Very, very cool. 
Yeah. So Ben, why don't you just take us through? I like to always, you know, kind of get to know our guests and uh, we'll get into ophthalmology um, specific topics, maybe, you know, coming up, but give us a little bit of background of, you know, did you always know you want to be a doctor? If so, did you know you wanted to go into ophthalmology? Is ophthalmology running your family? Like give us the background of, of Ben LaHood growing up and eventually deciding he wants to become a doctor. Yeah, well, I'm from way down south near Antarctica. I'm, I'm down by Dunedin, so the bottom of the South Island of New Zealand. And that's where I grew up. It's a university town. Uh, there's not a lot else. And so I definitely don't come from a medical background. My, my dad would faint if he sees blood on TV. So uh, when, I, when I was going through the end of high school, I remember going and seeing my uh, high school guidance counselor and saying, you know what, I wouldn't mind going to med school. I think I could do this. And you know, not many people from my school went to university. So the guidance counselor was like, I don't know, I've never been asked that before. I mean, in, in consideration, he was also the coach of the rugby team. So, you know, it's a bit of multitasking. But anyway, I went to uni, uh, you know, did really well there. I think I was motivated to do well, got into med school. And then, um, you know, going through med school, I think I was sort of more ticking things off I didn't want to do. You know, I, I realized I do not want to be an obstetrician. It's too stressful. I don't want to be a pediatrician. Again, too stressful. You can tell I'm a bit of a chicken. And then uh, what happened was I graduated from med school and I was a junior doctor. And over here, we become sort of general residents. We rotate around things. I'm doing all these rotations. And I think, man, this isn't at all like Grey's Anatomy. You know, this is, <laughs> I, like, I, haven't, I haven't done like a single thoracotomy in the lift so far. Like this is disgraceful. And so I quit. I was like, I'm out. I don't want to do medicine anymore. I'm going to, I'm going to think of something else to do, but this just isn't me. This is, I'm a paper monkey. You know, I trained to be an ER, you know, I was like, I want to be George Clooney. So I was really disappointed. And I, I went and I, I took some time out and I, I went, I went over to Australia and <laughs> seems to be my escape. And I went and spent some time on the beach and, uh, this professor of ophthalmology back in New Zealand, Gordon Sanderson, he's passed away since, but he phoned me up and he said, hey, Ben, uh, you're an idiot. And I was like, yeah, 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 you've got a point there. You've got a point. And he said, how about if I gave, if I set up a job where you go to a small town and you just hang out in the eye department, they'll, they'll pay you a living salary. Uh, you can just sort of get to know them maybe help out a little bit eventually, uh, just see if you like it, you know, just see what you think. Cause uh, I'd done quite well in ophthalmology during med school, I'd won some prizes. And, uh, and so I went to this small town, Nelson, and they really embraced me and I, I grew to love it. And I uh, never looked back, became an ophthalmologist. So I've got a lot to thank that guy for, Gordon Sanderson. So I need to know how, like Gordon didn't just know that you were on the beach somewhere. You must have met him at some point. What's the backstory between you and Gordon? Yeah, so when I was uh, going through med school, uh, we had sort of prizes in certain specialties, and I had an inkling that I'd like to do ophthalmology. And so at the end of all of our studies, uh, when it was time for the ophthalmology exam, uh, I said, hey, I'm not partying tonight. I'm studying. I want to win this prize. You win an ophthalmoscope. You know, who, who gets an ophthalmoscope? I really want one. And so that's how Gordon knew me was he was like, yep, that guy put some effort in. I think he might be all right. So he did know that I was, that I'd, we sort of kept in touch a little bit. And I, I think he realized that it was a really stupid move to just duck out of ophthalmology or duck out of medicine. Were you, when you were over there, 
what was your plan? Was this sort of like, I'm young, I'll figure it out. Or are you like, I just need some time to really consider my next steps. Did you not have a plan? Did you just want to be on the beach? I'm yeah, jealous I, of that. Blake, I wouldn't you it was, to? And, and most, most importantly, at that point, did you consider a life of crime? Because, because that's right at the moment where a life of crime might be a good idea for a couple of years. You right. Know? Nonviolent yeah. crime. Oh, nonviolent crime. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I'm not the biggest person. I wouldn't have been able to be violent. So I think, uh, I, I think at the time I just thought, yeah, I'm young. I'll figure it out. And I always wanted to do something kind of entrepreneurial, to be honest. So that was probably where my, my life was headed. You know, growing up, my dad, uh, he was a lawyer and I loved that he had an office job. I loved everything about going to work, putting a suit on, you know, having a routine. And I thought, actually, I think that's what I want. But, uh, you know, Judy calls. How, how is, is it, is it, is it difficult to, uh, to earn a spot in residency over there in ophthalmology? In the United States, it's quite difficult. Is it, is it similarly challenging? Can, or is it yeah. easier? Can you just decide you want to do that or? No, it's similarly uh, nepotistic and uh, similarly, it's getting more and more academic, unfortunately. You know, where I am at the moment in South Australia, I think the last two candidates had PhDs getting onto the scheme. So it's getting worse, which is unfortunate. When I got on, it was a little bit more, um, I would say almost gang orientated. You know, what's this guy like? Do I like Black? Yeah, he's cool. Like, I wouldn't mind hanging out with him for the next 30 or 40 years. Yeah, that's fine. And, you know, are his referees okay? Yeah, he's, he's worked hard. Cool. Okay, that's all right. And it's turned much more into, okay, uh, how many presentations has he done? What PhD has he done? Does he know the right people? And it's a bit disappointing because people are getting on to ophthalmology training closer and closer to 40, you know, and by the time they're going to get through and be working, there's going to be people thinking about retirement. So it's, it's getting worse and worse. Uh, unfortunately, the bottleneck is we just don't have enough training spots. I'm, I'm also curious about this because in the United States, you know, we're looking at basically a doubling in the cataract. If you just look at cataract surgery, because of the aging population in the U.S., it's looking like by the by about 2030, we're going to double our cataract volume from about somewhere in the three million range to almost six million. And wow. sorry, I'm salivating there. Sorry, sorry. I know. Please come <laughs> yeah. join us. Please come on over. No, so you know, they, in the United States, there are only 450 spots per year out of, you know, for 330 million people. So, and they're not increasing those spots. As a matter of fact, the government is not necessarily inclined to increase residency spots because they find that they, they spend more if they train more doctors. So never mind the fact that there are people out there who can't get care or that are, you know, maybe waiting longer for those things. So is it similar in Australia and or New Zealand in terms of the aging population and a stable number, a stable steady supply or low supply of ophthalmologists? Yeah, there is. We have started in New Zealand at least uh, putting trainees out into smaller centers. So it used to be just very much the main centers, which uh, to an American audience would seem like absolute country towns, but our big cities, you know, used to take a handful of trainees and now they're spending time a bit more rural so that creates more spaces but still well underserviced and the, there were complaints previously about almost uh being on purpose you know to try and drive people to private practice um drive patients to have their surgery done privately uh, the, i don't think there's a illuminati doing that at the moment i don't think that's really happening but 
that's that's one view of people, but yeah, certainly still underserviced. And is that what's the what, what's the general makeup? Are, are most cataract refractive surgeons are they in private practices that are or that's like a mom and pop or one or two people? Or is it you know, multi-specialty clinics of 10 or 15 doctors? Are most people employed by university and hospitals? Obviously, it's a mixture of that, but is it heavily favored towards one or the other? Yeah, it's really variable. So uh, in New Zealand, it's very much that most people work in the public system and do a little bit of private. And in Australia, it's the complete other way around where most people work in private, do a little bit of public. So for instance, here in Australia, I do one day a week in public. And I'm seen as doing a lot of charity work. I mean, I, I sort of joke, but, you know, people are like, wow, that's so good of you. Whereas in New Zealand, people would be like, you sell out. I can't believe you only do one day. That's pathetic. So it does vary. And in terms of like big or small places, most cities will have one or two sort of large multi-specialist centres. Uh, and I was part of one of those in Auckland. And then uh, I've moved to sort of a smaller boutique place where it's just me and another colleague. That's nice. And so you, you've kind of been able to appreciate both practice types. You've been in the big machine group practice setting and you've been more boutique. You know, what's what's kind of your feeling about, you know, the differences between that? Because I have to tell you, like, you know, Gary and I operate in very, very busy centers where we do a tremendous volume of cataracts and we're lucky to do that. But sometimes I kind of and I have, a, I have, you know, lots of employees and lots of locations, but sometimes I'm like, man, It'd be nice just to have like one little center and maybe do like 10 or 15 cases in a morning and call it, call it a day. You know, uh, the grass is greener. Oh yeah. Welcome, welcome to my world. Absolutely. So when I, when I felt like when I was part of a big corporation, you do, I mean, it might, it's probably very different where you are because uh, I was, I was junior. And so I really did feel like a bit of a, a hired cataract jockey, you know, like you get to work, <laughs> you get to work. And uh and so being part of a smaller practice where I get to make some decisions, uh, a bit more autonomy, you know, for instance, coming over to ASCRS, I can just say to the team, hey, guys, shut it down for a week. You know, uh, that's really nice. I do much prefer it, but it comes with its own challenges. You know, you don't have the same marketing machine. You don't have the same um, finances behind it. You know, just even in terms of staff, you don't have so much subspecialization. You know, you don't have so many yeah, all I do is refraction. You have to have people that can do the machines, take the data, do everything. So uh, it's a lot more uh, sort of fly by the seat of your pants. You know, if someone's sick in the small practice, uh, it's a day where I do everything, you know. So uh, they've got their pros and cons, but I, I am really enjoying being part of a small practice. Yeah, I think having the, the ability to have autonomy is, you know, in terms of your quality of life, that's everything. And Blake, I don't know if you agree with this or not, but it seems like with private equity that's sort of coming and 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 gobbling up a lot of practices, and and, and not to say it's every private equity, because I've I've had some conversations with folks who have said that they've pretty much been left alone, they can make their own decisions. I think the fear is that just like you said, Ben, that that people who become hired guns basically don't have any autonomy over what IOL to use over how many patients they have on their schedule, over what viscoelastic or machine they use, or even their days on vacation. You know, those things really do end up mattering. And when you're a professional, you know, so but I appreciate you saying that. So even maybe doing smaller volume, do you find more meaning in, in the connection to your patient in a smaller boutique 
I really do. And I think, you know, the patients enjoy it too, I'm sure, well, I hope. And, uh, you know, I get to spend a bit more time with them. I know that a lot of people, there's a lot of focus on decreasing chair time. And I'm probably a bit weird. I, I have a lot of chair time, but I, I enjoy it. You know, I, I genuinely do. And, and I think that the other side of it that I've seen is, you know, if I, I, I enjoy the research side of it, the dissemination of knowledge, you know, going away to conferences and talking about things, meeting you guys. And that's one issue that did come up when I was part of a big practice was, you know, I was away at the ESCRS presenting on stage, running a course. I come home and, and all I can hear from my colleagues is, you know, who does he think he is? Why is he away doing that? He should be back in the operating theater, knocking out cataracts for us and making money. So it's actually, uh, it's, it's sure, it's probably not quite as profitable, but it's a nice way of life. Yeah. At the end of a career, when you look back, you're, I don't think any of us are going to think, man, I wish I just did one more cataract surgery. <laughs> I, I think we're probably going to think, I wish I would have had one more happy patient or one more good encounter or solved one more problem for our profession so that our people that we hand this over to in 40 years, you know, are not banging their head against the same problem. Um, yeah, for, for me, I tell you, like I had this problem join my practice and our dynamics are different because it was my, my, my grandfather's practice and then had four sons and they all uh, went into ophthalmology. I'm the third generation. So it's a family oh, business, wow. you know, so that's good and bad depending on the day. But it was a similar deal. Like when I got started, I, I wanted to go out and you know, uh, you know, share what I was doing. I was doing a lot of surgery. So companies gave me opportunities and yeah. I was trying to differentiate myself. Like, Hey, I'm not just, you know, my dad's son, I'm me. And, and I have, I can contribute. And I spent the past five years doing that, but I'd kind of get the first couple years or so I'd kind of get, you know, an earful, like, man, you're missing a lot of days. And I'm like, for me at this point, it's about just preventing burnout. I can't just cut all day or see patients all day. I need to like go off and, and, and talk to you guys and, you know, complain to you guys and learn from you guys. That's like part of like the flow, you know? Right. And, and, Ch and, and Blake, I'll just say this. I think that, uh, didn't your dad say that he used to be, no he used to be known as, as Chuck Williamson's son. And now he's getting referenced as Blake Williamson's dad. Yeah. Jim cat, <laughs> the famous Jim cats and Pam cats. They, uh, literally they were somewhere and, uh, and Pam said, Oh, I think that's Blake's dad. And Jim turned and goes, ah, it's a little bit more. So, so I, I thought I contemplated retiring at that point, but yes, I, 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 just, I, I just bought a house. And so my mortgage calls, you know, <laughs> do people come into the practice, Blake? And they say, uh, you know, and you're like, I'm Dr. Williamson. And they say, oh, no, the other Dr. Williamson. And like, oh, no, no, the other Dr. Williamson. Like, are there patients that know your grandfather? No doubt. So, so I'd say probably two or three times a month. It's gotten a little bit less, but two or three times a month, I'll still have a patient that saw my grandfather you know, wow. like 50 something years ago. Yeah. And then for glasses as they're a kid. And then my dad did their cataract or my dad did their RK. And now I'm doing their cataract surgery, you know? So it's like, it's yeah, pretty that's cool. beautiful. That's yeah. beautiful. It's great. It's great medical legally too. If you had any trouble, you're like, no, no, that was a different Dr. Williamson. That's right. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so Ben, I want to talk to you a little bit about, I actually rarely delve into actually the nuts and bolts of ophthalmology, but while I've got you on here, I really want to get some of your perspectives. Um, you know, you, I feel like you've sort of made a name for yourself around astigmatism correction. Um, it's something that I feel like, you know, by reading some of your papers and listening to um, Ophthalmology Against the Rule, which is a great podcast. If anyone hasn't listened to that, you need to look that up. Ben LaHood, Ophthalmology Against the Rule. Uh, it's a fantastic podcast. Very, very informative. But 
some interesting takes in that podcast about astigmatism. Um, have you gotten any, like, I would love for you, one of the most interesting things that I learned from that, and I agree with, but I hadn't heard anyone else articulate it, is that an incision in the cornea can ultimately affect the astigmatism in any meridian, not necessarily on axis. Yeah, I think that's, that's I mean, you guys could have taught us so much because I do the podcast with Nick Andrew, who's a, an amazing glaucoma surgeon and a great friend and colleague. And when we were setting up, I should have talked to you, Gary, at the time because you were running your podcast before you handed over to Blake. And we set out with a three-part mini-series on SIA, so surgically induced astigmatism. Without a doubt, our lowest rating show of all time because no one can put up with SIA for that long. But I, I loved I, it. It was my favorite. That was my favorite <laughs> one. I mean, that was my favorite three episodes was SIA. Okay. I'm all about it. Okay. Oh, uh, good. Because I am too. I'm So I'm passionate about astigmatism management, mainly because I think that there's this, I mean, in, in, in ophthalmology, I think like your episode on dogma, you know, we're fighting apathy. Our biggest issue really that we fight is, you know, people saying, well, I get, I get good outcomes with a 2.4 incision, you know, why would I change? Uh, my patients are happy. And I always like to say, well, you can't improve your outcomes if you don't know your outcomes, because if you're not refracting people and finding out, maybe that person that's 6.6 could be 6 over 3, you know, or for you guys, 20 over 10. And, you know, I just think we need to actually think about these things and can we do better? And so with the, the toric or with the astigmatism management side of things, and like you say, the SIA, I just think there's been the, these sort of dogmas that when you, or when I was training, you cut the cornea, let's say you cut it temporarily, you flatten it there and you steepen it at 90 degrees. And that's how life is. And it's amazing and it's simple. And you know, it always works on. the same way. Always works, always works. And that's how I was trained. You know, I had, I had consultants that were doing paired incisions and uh, all this sort of stuff. And and, and what you do is if you look at it, if you actually take the time to look at your pre and post-op measurements, biometry, keratometry, you'll find that that, that that flattening effect can actually occur anywhere around the cornea. So if you cut temporally, you might get flattening at 90 degrees to that. And what people listening would think will be like, well, who cares? Well, I think where it matters is we're moving more and more towards doing premium IOLs. You know, I always like the thought that as soon as you've got the cataract out, that's a refractive procedure. You know, you've got this cataract out and you've cured the blindness. All right, now let's make things as good as possible. And if you do all the little things right, you'll get a good outcome. And one of them is thinking about that SIA. And one dogma that's gone around has been when you're calculating a toric lens, put in 0.1 for surgically induced astigmatism and it always acts temporally and that's how it is. And when you map out, say you did a hundred incisions temporally and you map how each one will act on the cornea, they'll be all around the clock and that's fine. They'll be all around the clock. Some might be 0.3 diopters of astigmatism change. Some might be 0.5, you know, they might cause some big effects. The, the idea with that 0.1 is if you average them and you average their direction, you average everything about them, their magnitude, you probably will get a 0.1 flattening effect on average. But the average doesn't matter for that individual patient. And so my drive has been to say to people, well, just put zero in because 
if you if you can't predict this at all, and I don't believe you can at the moment, unless you're using a tiny incision, and most people aren't using a 1.8 incision, um, just put zero because if you're going to be out by 0.3, well, it may as well be zero plus 0.3 rather than 0.1 plus 0.3. So it seems like a tiny pedantic thing, but I just want to, I love answering the simple questions and trying to sort of just improve everyday surgeon's life. And that's just one little thing where you might just be able to creep in a little bit of incremental gain. Right. Yeah, I think that I think that the biggest thing that people don't know about that is 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 just comes back to vector analysis. And they forget that a vector not only has a magnitude, but it has a meridian too. You know, and so that's the biggest thing. And and I think Doug and everybody at Baylor pointed that out that like you got to consider the meridian. It's not you know, and when you look at all that, it's close to zero, but people, we're talking about this, but people still will put in 0 0.3, 0 0.4 for their SIA to this day, you know? Yeah, and, and I think also that's that apathy thing, Blake, is that, you know, that's what I've been told and my results are okay and they're fine. Uh, you know, I was talking to Warren Hill for the Second Look podcast recently, and and he, he analyzes everyone's refractive results. You know, you can send him your results and he'll tell you, how good you are basically and he said you know he sends results back to people and he said yeah well about 70 percent of the time you're within half a diopter and they're like rubbish that is absolute lie i know that i'm 90 percent you know that that's rubbish but if, you know if you're not really delving down and analyzing it and really looking at it a happy patient can fool you into thinking you're good absolutely absolutely one one thing i'll mention is and I, I talked about this on a, on a previous podcast, uh, or actually it's upcoming on Sirius see the podcast, but I had a, an optometry colleague who had about nine diopters of, of with the rule of stigmatism. Okay. And I had to go through the FDA process, the, the compassionate use exemption to get a lens from Europe to be able to actually help him. I made my standard, you know, 2.6 millimeter incision temporally he flattened two diopters with the rule, okay? Because think about it. This is a cornea that biomechanically yeah. is so on stretch that any incision you make in the, in the eye is probably going to have a flattening effect in the steep meridian. That was one of the aha moments I had after listening to your podcast and seeing it myself. Um, the other thing is, you know, Priya Gupta and I um, developed the Wurtz Gupta formula for LRI calculations, lricalc.com, if anyone is interested. If you'll notice, there is no SIA box to, you can't, we do not let people actually input their SIA. And it's for the exact same reason that you said. I didn't want people putting in numbers that probably we're going to steer them in the wrong direction. So I just basically eliminated that as an option. And so, and, and the other thing is we always put the arcs on the steep axis. Now I know arcuate incisions are not as in vogue uh, in the rest of the world because you have like a T2, a lower toric option. And if we had that in the US, clearly we would use it. But since we don't have anything really less than about 0 0.9, 0 0.8, we, we want to do something to help people who are, you know, in the lower astigmat category. So, but our calculator always puts the arcs on the steep meridian. And I, I don't know if that's exactly right, but I feel like it's been, it has worked very well for us. We've actually published a paper showing that we're getting good results. We've analyzed oh, I think it. It's but, great. I think it's great because, I mean, when, we, when you look back at, uh, you know, extra capsulins, you know, big incisions, 
they are predictable and LRIs are the same. You know, if you're making a good 90% depth wide incision, it will work. They are predictable. I think the, the things that are unpredictable are those 2.75 incisions. You know, you, you don't know where they're going, but those sort of LRIs, they're very good. And I don't want people to think that I'm, I'm just down on LRIs um, as, a, as a thing. Um, it's really just that Torex, where we are, and we have such, it's such a golden country. And I compare ourselves to Europe, really, where, you know, we get free access to, to any lens and any power, any cylinder. You know, there are elegant ways to do it. And if you don't have access to them, LRIs and the LRI kelp is brilliant. And I'm not just saying that because I'm talking to you, Gary, but, you know, I think anyone that's doing these things to eliminate astigmatism, you don't want to give someone that clarity of vision, but give them refractive blindness. You know, if you can help them in any way and just improve their situation, go for it. And I do think LRIs are more predictable than just a standard incision. Yeah, what, what about... Um... What about lenses? Um, so what's the what's the hot hot sexy take on, on presbyopia lenses over there? Over here, you know, doctors are trying to figure out the new Synergy lens. I've recently been doing a lot of mixing and matching with Synergy and the new Symphony that just came out, the OptiBlue, which is the new version of Symphony. Other doctors are still rocking and rolling with Panoptics. We got IC, IC8 that's about to drop, or IC9, yeah. IC8, IC8. IC8, yeah, I'm that's, a big fan. That's coming out. So kind of what do you, tell, tell us about the patient comes into your office today and says, hey, I want to be free of glasses. You know, yeah. what, what, what kind of lens options are you thinking in Australia? Yeah, yeah. So we, we really are lucky. We've got everything. And so my, my go-to lenses, because uh, I, I do a lot of presbyopia corrections. So I, the, the hot, sexy thing at the moment is Vividi. So the Alcon Vividi lens, without a doubt. I, I love it. It's changed my practice. And I've got to admit, I do some consulting for Alcon and Zeiss. So but I do use it a lot. And I think the way my consultations go, uh, you know, first of all, do you want to be glasses free? Great. And then it comes down to probably more lifestyle. You know, do you do night driving, that sort of thing? Because I've been a big trifocal user for probably the past seven years. And the trifocal I've used the most would be the Zeiss, the AT Lisa. Uh, I've loved it. And it, it still gives me really great results. So if I see someone that really wants everything, I'll talk to them about, we can give you trifocality, but there's a, there's a big compromise. You know, there's a trade-off, no free lunch and optics. And so if you're happy to compromise halos around, you know, oncoming headlights, that sort of thing, a trifocal works really well. I'm, I'm happy with that, but I am quite a gatekeeper. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm overly negative in terms of the visual side effects of it. And so I hate explanting lenses. I'm like I said, I'm a chicken. I don't want to be doing this. I don't want to be messing around inside an eye again. So if I think there's any chance that they're not going to like it and they still want presbyopia correction, I tend to go for a vividity. And I, I, what I do is it's, it probably isn't, oh, it's not efficient at all, but what I'll do is I'll do their first eye aim for emetropia, and then I'll bring them back a week later, say, what do you think? And I'd say about 70% of people are like, I love it. I can read. My distance is great. Everything's good. And if then if then that thirty percent that are like, no, nah, I can't really read that well. I can use my phone, but not that well. I'll usually give them mini monovision. So aim for about minus 0.5, minus 0.75 with a vividity for the second eye. And uh, sorry to get into the nuts and bolts of it, but I think it's probably interesting to know how it goes. And uh, and that seems to work really well. I. I, I do think that Vividi limits people's vision to 6.6 or 20.20. 20. 
Um, I haven't really had people getting better than 2020 vision with it, which is a little bit annoying because a lot of these people are coming in for refractive lens exchanges and they've already got great vision. But it's just, again, just saying there is that compromise. The, the Synergy lens from J&J, I think for intermediate vision with its combination of trifocality and EDOF technology, the intermediate's fantastic and probably better than other trifocals on the market. But I found that the distance quality, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about it taking a while to come in. You know, you'll get your, you'll get your 2020, but it'll take a while. Optically, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And I've had a couple of patients where they haven't got there. So I haven't been quite as big a fan of that lately. But I mean, there's some great lenses on the market. The other one that I use a lot is the IC8. And I don't use it as a presbyopia correcting lens. Like I think some people put it in the non-dominant eye, but I use it therapeutically. So all those, all those eyes that your granddad like gave RK, uh, when they come back, I'm like, have I got the lens for you? And the IC8 works wonders for them because it gets, it gets rid of that day-to-day -day variation. I aim a little bit myopic, gets rid of that hypropic drift over time. Very happy patients with that. Anyone that's had, say, you know, an irregular cornea, uh, maybe I've regularized their cornea from keratoconus, but there's still got a lot of pyroid aberrations. I think the IC8 is magic. And I'm looking forward to you guys having it and seeing what you do with it. Yeah, I wonder, I wonder how that's going to affect my light adjustable lens. You know what I mean? I mean, because yeah. that's where that's where I'm positioning that, you know, and I love it because I get to involve my optometrist and he does all the light adjustments. And it's a wonderful collaborative approach between MD and OD. But gosh, if we could just pop in an IC8, Gary, that sounds mm. pretty nice to me. And I know. That I've, good? Yeah, I've been I've been sort of thinking the same thing. I mean, I and and it is interesting how the, the lens was developed for one purpose, really to extend the depth of focus. But we're all thinking, oh, pinhole effect. This is going to be amazing yeah. on irregular corneas. And so. I think what's interesting about the IC8 is it's going to find its beachhead market in the RK and the post, maybe the, uh, the, the keratoconus eyes, or maybe even EBMD patients who have just an irregular cornea that is hard to figure out. So I think it's going to establish a beachhead there. And then we're going to figure out how does this work and, and how should we position this maybe in other, other patients. But I think it's going to be a, I mean, if I'm, if I'm buying stock, I'm buying stock at IC8 right now. Like this, this lens is going to be here to stay. It's because we're always going to have the need for, you know, to, to have a lens that helps sort of cover the sins of an irregular cornea. So I'm super excited about it. I think that uh, any RKI that walks in the door, I'm already thinking you're getting an IC8. Yeah. Like it's, totally. that, it's just that good because totally. it just eliminates so many problems. And when you think about it, it all originated from the camera inlay inside the cornea that people loved until it started wrecking their corneas. Um, and so, you know, it does work. The tech, we know the technology works. And from, from my experience, in terms of putting it in and it's centering, I had a few worries, you know, what if this is a bit off center? What if there's a big angle cap or those sort of things? It just works. It's very yeah. simple and it works. By the way, Ben, you know that Gary has a camera in his eye, don't you? I'm not sure if you know that. Oh no. no! I'm kidding. Oh, no. <laughs> no, I'm not that old, Blake. Come on. I was going to say, I'm sure he's too young for that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I want to get back to uh, Vividy though, because this is this is actually an interesting conversation. I've probably put in about five in the past year, like five hundred ish mix of Panoptics and and Vividy probably three quarters panoptics, maybe one quarter Vividi. Cause we were a little bit, you know, we were earlier on with panoptics and, and Vividi didn't launch. 
So what's weird to me is I started off really, really high on Vividi and, and I was thinking, oh, this is going to be great. X-Wave technology. Um, man, X-Wave. X-Wave. I can't wait for the X-Wave to, to hit. This is Yeah, I'm going to take my X-Wave to the X-Games. And, right, man, right. Awesome. Give yeah. me more X-Wave, baby. And so I don't understand it, first of all, and I don't like recommending things I don't fully understand. And I still don't fully understand it, except that in some ways, it makes the optical path less like a V and more like a slope. So you don't end up getting this sharp focal point on the retina. You end up getting this funnel of focality that sort of, it's almost like elongating the coordinate of Sturm, um, which I think that's the first time that has been dropped on off the grid. So mark that down. <laughs> um, so here, here's the thing. When Vividi works, it's fantastic. It's like best of all worlds. They're 2020, J1 or J2 but really like no dysphotopsias. It's like a really nice result and patients are ecstatic. What's, what's weird though is it's, it's probably in the very same vein as what you're talking about with like 70% of your patients are happy and then 30% are like, I don't know, but like it's not uncommon for me to get a patient who's like J4 or like just, and I can't figure out exactly why it is. Not like leftover astigmatism. Yeah, it's, I'm it's totally, like, that's what I'm looking at the moment because I'm thinking- if I could predict that, uh, right. I could I could eliminate that that visit in between. I could say, look, you're getting mini monovision because yes, I, even though, even though I like to keep people the same, I know Blake, you were saying about mixing and matching, and I'm a big proponent of mixing and matching. It's been proven it works. It works really well. But I do think there's some synergy in giving both eyes the same, you know. And if I could eliminate that trip by knowing right off the bat you're going to be better, I still I've got to say. I still think it's pupil dependent. I know they've said the technology is not at all pupil dependent, but when I put it in a, a little old lady with, you know, tiny pupils that I don't know how she sees out of, she comes back and she's like, yeah, I can read the phone book. You know, this is great. But I put in a younger person, maybe with a congenital cataract, something like that. They often come back and they're like, yeah, I can, I can use my phone. Like I can, I can probably send a text, but man, I, I wouldn't want to sit and read a book, you know? I, I still have that gut feeling. I, I don't have the data to back it up, but I think it's pupil dependent. Yeah. And so that is the reason why I've kind of almost gone back towards, um, you know, using, you know, the panoptics because at least I can tell them like, okay, you're, here, are the, here are the upsides. You came in, you want to be free of glasses. I can, I can get you there. The, you know, the cost is you're going to have you know, rings around lights that can be distracting if you're not aware of them or used to them. That's kind of how I talk about it. I don't talk as much about like, you're going to have glare and halos. And I just say, you know, you're going to see rings around lights. They can distract you if you're not aware of them. But I talk about background noise being sort of, this is sort of the background noise of optics. You know, if a fan is on, generally you don't realize it until the fan turns off. You know, oh, that was on the whole time. So, that's gold. That's gold. I'm going to use that. That's nice. Yeah. yeah. Well, a lot of times we'll be sitting in a room and in the overhead, you know, it, it, the, the air is on. I say, I bet you didn't really notice that the, the air was blowing. You can hear that, right? I say, okay, just like your brain kind of tuned that out, you're, you will learn to tune out the rings around light. So I feel like with panoptics or with Synergy, because I've had, I've had good results with Synergy also, at least I can tell them like on the menu of options, this is the good side, this is the bad side. Yeah. Do you yeah. want this? Yes or no. 
And then if they complain afterwards, I can say, you know, okay, yes, we talked about these things. And if you don't like it, I'll just take it out. And then, but with, but with Vividy, I'm really scratching my head because it's like spin the wheel and they might be happy. They might be unhappy. And I've actually had to explant about the same rate of Vividy as I've had to explant Panoptics. It's really interesting. And, and I think that one of the things is, that's difficult is I hate as a surgeon when someone's coming to see me and I, I don't know my own thing. You know, I can't say a definite yes or no. I have to say, we'll see. I always hate the idea of like, we'll see. I know. I tell patients that I feel like a weatherman, you know, and I'm always, you know, <laughs> I, I, I predict sun and, and the, the picnic is going to be fantastic. But when rain happens, you know, no one's happy. You know, I tell them about the, the computer models and, you know, all these things, but it just sometimes the, you don't fit the model. And that's sort of the conversation I have with them. So, you know, with trifocals, and I've got to put a plug in here at the ASRS meeting, I'm running a course on trifocals with Damien Gatnell and Michael Goggin. And uh, I, I, I trust the technology. You know, I, I know that it'll work and I know that there'll be people that will have side effects, but it is funny. It's sort of like your this old-fashioned thing now. It used to be modern, but it's sort of this thing that I go back to and I say, "Yep, if you want that, if you come in here and you say, I want, I want vision at all distances, and I'm happy to pay the price. I'm happy to make the the compromise. I just do never want to see a pair of glasses again." I'm like, "Yeah, trifocals are for you." Yeah, I mean, and that's what. And with me, I didn't have as much success with with panoptics. I seem to be in the minority. Uh, I just couldn't get to work as well, but Vividy I've had great success with specifically because I only offer it um, to people who, you know, tell me I, I can't deal with halo and glare at night. It's that simple. So, I mean, I, I automatically go to my mix and match because I, I, I agree with you, Ben. I couldn't, I can't get synergy to work well for distance consistently. Like uh, 25% of my patients were like, eh, I don't love the distance and they can't wait three months. That's not really, that's not good enough, but the, but the near is best in class and the intermediate too. So in the other eye, I go with this new OptiBlue, and that works great. But when I'm talking to them about Halo and Glare, if they're like, no, man, I, I can't do that. I drive a lot at night, et cetera. I immediately shift to Vividy and just say, you're going to be in reading glasses. I think I, I, I tell them I'd be shocked if I can't get you to J5, knowing full well many of them will be J2. Um, but if they are J5, then, you know, that's fine. And they'll have to occasionally wear readers. Um, and so that's why I haven't had to take out any because of that. So I've had success with that lens, just with the expectation management. Yeah, I haven't taken any out. I think that, uh, I mean, it's always underselling, you know, over-delivering. It's, it's always the way. But, you know, we're still, I, I, when I met with Alcon recently at an advisory board, I said, you know, when's the holy grail coming? When, when are we at Vividy, but it's stretched even further? You know, can we stretch that, can we stretch that conoid stem even further? And they're like, well, you know, actually, I think what you're talking about is an accommodative lens. And, and that's where we're all headed, you know. So we're not there yet. Well, with that in mind, Ben, what are the things on your radar that are exciting for like, you know, we're all still kind of, I'm, I'm probably a few years older, but like, where do you see us heading and what things are on your radar that are really exciting? Because we, you know, it's, we probably consume the same general media, but you probably see some things over in Australia that we haven't seen yet. And I'm just curious of like, where, where do you think we're heading? What are you excited about? Well, I think um, this is going to come across really pessimistic and I'm an optimistic person. So take this with a grain of salt, but I think we're, we're going to come up against the asymptote of what we can achieve preoperatively. We're going to come up against, look, this is as good as we can measure your tear film. This is as good as we can measure you, but 
Post-operative, what excites me is, is laser adjustable IOLs. So the technology that uh, we've seen, you know, so far, I think Liliana Werner has spoken about it at quite a few meetings about the idea of taking an existing implanted lens and lasering it to either give it multifocality, give it an EDOF sort of style, taking that away again if people don't like it, adjusting it, not with the, the light adjustable technology, but literally docking with a laser and adjusting the, it sounds like it's to do with the uh, hydrophobicity of the lens, almost like putting glistenings into a lens in a way, uh, which you know some companies will be pleased with. But I think that uh, basically that excites me because if I could, if I could absolutely fine tune any historic lens, that's wonderful. I thought that that's what I would be doing with, we have over here, I'm not sure how they are in the US, but add-on uh, lenses, so sulcus lenses that can give trifocality. And I was quite excited by that. I thought, you know, this will be awesome. This will mean all of those people that come back that, that had lenses ages ago that couldn't have it, I can put them in. Unfortunately, I don't feel like it's quite as good as a, just a standard panoptics lens or trifocal lens. So the, the idea that light adjust, laser adjustable lenses, sorry, are just around the corner. You know, they've done human trials. Uh, I'm sure that that's coming. That really excites me. The idea that I could give someone multifocality and if they hate it, take it back again. Yeah, that, that would be fantastic. That, um, I, I, I agree. I've seen some of those. I think it's called Perfect Lens. The technology yeah. is uh, yeah. use a femtosecond laser. And again, these, these terms, I think they use the term phase wrapping, which is about as is, is, uh, interesting as X-Wave. But uh, do, it, do, do, you, do you guys know what they call the femtosecond laser for the Perfect Lens? It has a name. They call it the Perfector. The Perfector. I, thought, I thought that's such a cool, a cool name. I like it. <laughs> it Wasn't that like a? Yeah, I feel like it's a Harry Potter, uh, the Perfector, or something. Is it, isn't that name. your? Isn't that your nickname, Gary? That's right. That's, that's <laughs> it. That's it, man. That's it. That's it. Um, what do you What do you think about accommodating lenses? Um, are you seeing anything over in Australia that is making you excited, or anything on the horizon? You know, I think yeah. that there's some cool things coming. I'm just still. I'm still, you know, a little skeptical that we're going to be able to yeah. get the, I mean, am I yeah, alone? I'm, I don't know. I don't, no, no, I'm totally skeptical. I mean, I've, I, I'm, I think all of us are probably just past the generation of the crystallines uh, being, you know, seeing a lot of that, putting those in and seeing them not accommodate. And so the idea of sort of fluid filled or oil filled and various fluids within a lens, it seems quite exciting. I, I worry a little bit. I mean, we've seen, you know, ruptured breast implants and, and things like that. I do wonder how is that technology going to be? It's going to have to be pretty robust and the changes are going to have to be subtle. So the, I, this is sort of pie in the sky, you know, blue sky thinking here, but I don't think we'll see a truly accommodative lens till we see sort of nanotechnology, until you know, we see a, an actual motor actually changing focus within a lens on a tiny scale uh, I don't feel as though these fluid changes. I'm sure that we'll, we'll replay this podcast in a few years and I'm going to be like the guy that's like, yeah, personal computers will never take off. The internet's just a fad, you know? Uh, <laughs> so, so we might have to cut this section out, but right. I, I don't see it being uh, until we have a sensor and a, a motorized nano accommodate, truly accommodative lens system. I think that's when we're going to see a real... Um, shift in technology but these fluid filled ones and, and that sort of idea that you're still relying on the ciliary muscle capsule changes i'm a little dubious 
Hey, Gary, in our last five minutes here, I want to kind of sh shift gears and talk a little bit about life stuff. Because one of the cool things I read of Ben's and CRST was just that he's just a unique guy that we already touched on. He was talking about like standing in line from certain, from like speaker sh uh, sp or, not, or a, a, a sneaker opening for like, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 shoes, right? And like being obviously the only ophthalmologist in, in that line. And I was just at a punk rock show on Friday night and there was a full on like brawl mouse pit happening in front of me. And I was looking around, I was like, I guarantee you I'm the only ophthalmologist here. <laughs> why, why is it, you know, that, that, that ophthalmologist, I mean, and, and Ben, you're an artist for those that don't know, really an amazing um, artist in, in many different media. Why is it that we ophthalmologists are, are so artistic and, you know, are, are so eccentric? Like there's no, there's very few boring ophthalmologist besides like retina specialists there's really not that most of us are pretty especially <laughs> refractive surgeons like we're fun to be around you know i think so i think it's because we've got a good perspective on life because people come to see us because they they want something done you know imagine imagine being a bowel surgeon and people are like oh i've got to get this cancer removed oh man i'm gonna have a stoma oh man uh whereas people come and see us and they're like hey blake uh i see really well but can you make me a bit better and you're like, yeah, of course, sit on down, let's do this. And so I think there's just this positive attitude, you know, there's this sort of, we can do that, you know, it's a, it's a yes mentality. And I think when you say yes to things, you know, you, you see more stuff and you have more excitement in your life and it's more fun. So I think that's why refractive surgeons are a bit more fun, but I'm a little biased. But, but I mean, ophthalmology in general, I do think it lends itself to the artistic side because, you know, even though we do the same operation and you know, you guys are doing hundreds or thousands of cataracts, you'll admit that each one is different. You know, you, you, you're going to place your chopper in a slightly different place or, you know, you're going to be slightly sweaty at a different point of the operation. Um, it's not boring and there is an art to it. Yeah, I've, I've always said I'm kind of a default yes. Like if you ask me to do something, like it's going to have to take a lot for me to be like, no, nah, I'm not I'm not down for that. Like if you want to go out, like let's go out. If you want to go to a movie, I'm in. You want to go to dinner? wherever we're going. Yes. Um, and, and I think that's exactly right. You know, it does take a little bit of courage to be willing to try these new things that we have to do uh, to help our patients. But, you know, when you get that feedback, that positive feedback, it just, I think it is a positive feedback loop of, oh, I tried a new thing and it, and it worked. And now I'm going to try other new things in my life. So what are the other new things in your life? What do you like doing for fun? What kind of food do you like? What kind of music do you listen to? What does is, what is Ben LaHood do on a weekend to unwind? Oh, wow. I think uh, that's always the, the worst question you can ever be asked. What are your hobbies? And you realize how boring you are. Yeah, I you know. know. Sorry. Sorry <laughs> no, no, I'm just getting smart. But, uh, you know, I used to love traveling. I, I, I feel disappointed that that's come to an end, but I'm looking forward to that starting up again. But that was a really big part of my life. Admittedly, it was mainly travel for conferences with a holiday tacked on, but that, you know, that's a big part of my life. Um, Music-wise, I'm a, I'm a big, I mean, this is going to show my age, but I'm a big 90s rap fan. So, you know, um, that uh, always makes for an interesting playlist in the operating theatre for the, you know, little old ladies hearing, <laughs> hearing something obscene, but that's okay. <laughs> ben, I've got, a, I've got a secret playlist. Yeah. And now that I'm talking about it, it probably isn't going to be as secret, but I'm going to share my secret workout playlist with you from Spotify. Yes, and Blake, please. if you want it as well, I'll share it. It's curated 90s rap gold. Uh, I'm in. I'm, I'm so in. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. <laughs> That's it. 
Hey, so Ben, tell us, um, tell us where we can find your two podcasts because you have two separate podcasts for those listening. Yeah. How, can, how can they, how can they follow you and log on and, and uh, listen to what you're doing? Yeah, thanks. Uh, so Ophthalmology Against the Rule, um, it's available probably everywhere that this podcast is available. It's available on Apple. Uh, you know, if you go on your phone, book on the podcast app. Uh, if you Google it, it's got its own website. Uh, I think it's oatrpodcast.com. Um, anywhere that you can find podcasts, you'll find it. And the other one, uh, the second look where I talk to interesting and infamous ophthalmologists, we've got Ike Ahmed, Arthur Cummings, those sort of people. Uh, that's also available in all those same places. So look up Google, look up Spotify, Apple. And again, it's got its own website. They've both, they've both got their own uh, Instagram pages. And I think I've got to say the part that I enjoy the most about Ophthalmology Against the Rules actually making the cover art. So we've got a we've got a, an Instagram page that is OATR podcast um, for Ophthalmology Against the Rule. And in each, each episode, I Photoshop uh, sort of a crazy background cover art. And that's my favorite part. You know, after we record an episode, we've done all the research, we've recorded it. I do all the editing. So that takes me hours. And then at the end, I reward myself with making a masterpiece. So check that out as well if you want. Hey, you need to drop that as an NFT and, and send yes. it up online. Oh my God. I want, I oh, want so the right. NFT of the cover oh, art. I could retire. You're so right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> the, the best thing, Gary, is um, um, whenever you and I get invited on to Ben's podcast next, we're going to be able to figure out uh, how interesting we are because you can look at how many minutes he spends with the guests. For instance, Ashman got 38 minutes, but Damien got an hour and nine minutes. So I said, clearly, yeah, he's more interested in Damien. So, so we're going to have to get to uh, an hour and 10 minutes in yeah. order to, because Damien's got the record right there. That's right. We That's don't right. speak French. We don't speak French, but uh, we, do, we do speak Red. Je ne parle pas français. Well, you know, with my last name, a lot of people ask me, am I French? Uh, La Hood, you know, and, uh, and not at all, but it's much easier to pretend I'm French. So, uh, but Damien, I mean, I've got to say, just, just on that note, the, definitely the most intelligent, amazing ophthalmologist out there, apart from us three, uh yeah i mean you know current company excluded uh a great guy so if you listen to any episode that'll be the one to listen to okay maybe when we're in all in washington dc for ascrs we can we can coordinate a dinner with uh you and uh, dr goggins and damien and myself and blake that'd be fantastic love to look forward to seeing you guys all right excellent Thanks for coming on. We'll see you next time. And Gary, uh, we have our last episode coming up, man. I'm looking forward to seeing you, buddy. All right. We're going to do it. It's going to be special. Thanks, man. Thank you to Dr. Gary Wirtz and Dr. Ben LaHood for joining this episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Until next time.